Uh, hello, back again. Uh, another episode of Talking to Myself. Welcome, welcome. Welcome, welcome. Today we have our first guest. Finally, on, we keep saying we I know, we guests. keep talking yeah, about it. Yeah, now it's actually happening. <laughs> welcome, Dr. Courtney Robinson. Uh, it's great to have you. Um, so just a little bit about Dr. Courtney Robinson. Uh, she had a Bachelor of Arts uh, from Howard University with her Master's of Education um, in Educational Psychology from the University of Texas at Austin and um, her Doctor of Philosophy, Curriculum, and Instructional Cultural Studies at UT Austin as well. Um, so if there's anything you sort of want to just give us a brief uh, overview, maybe what your dissertation was about, and maybe sort of what you focused on when you were studying. Thank you guys for having me on your show. It is fantastic. Um, I focused on the school to prison pipeline. I was really, we were always counting bodies. And so I was really interested in the stories of the people that were um, impacted by this phenomenon. And so my research focused on four generations of African-American men and their schooling and incarceration experiences. And those men range from age 21 to 65. And so a really sort wow. of deep look yeah. at how one phenomenon can affect so many generations of men over time. And what I found was that um, while there were nuances to their narratives, the story was sort of the same and how school pushed them out and pushed them into um, the criminal justice system. And so that's, so that sounds amazing. I'm, I'm a little bit interested because I think uh, Malcolm and I were looking and we saw that your bachelor's was in theater arts and directing. <laughs> um, and so we were just like, how did she get from that to uh, right. where you ended up? Um, so it's crazy because like, uh, my first play in the fourth grade, You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, I knew <laughs> then like, yeah. that I was going to be a star. <laughs> I was totally like, in it. And I loved theater. I absolutely loved it. And, you know, I would say, I don't know, eighth grade when Fame came out on TV with Debbie Allen. Uh -huh. and. Um, and she was like, you know, fame costs, and right here is where you start. And I was like, oh, I want to go to a high school like this. And I did. I went to Performing Arts High School in Dallas, loved it. Um, sort of the passion just continued to grow. I, you know, came to D.C., went to Howard, loved the theater program, and really thought that I would move to New York or London and direct plays, you know. Wow. Yeah. You know, that, <laughs> that's kind of how I thought life would be. Well, life is one of those things. Um, mm -hmm. Things don't always happen the way you want them to happen or sh the way they should happen or thought they would happen. I mean, it's just life. And um, I met this dude, and he was recruited by NASA and said, I'm moving to Northern California. Um, do you want to go? And at the time, I didn't have a gig lined up. Mm -hmm. I didn't know where I was going to go, what I was going to do. So I moved to California with this guy. And this guy. <laughs> <laughs> so it's the guy. Yeah. It's the guy. Um, and I started working in the improv troupe in San Francisco. And I don't know what happened. Like, I was on stage one night. And, like, usually when I was on stage, I would have this feeling of, like, exhilaration and excitement and the applause was fantastic and that night all I could think about was getting a burger and like <laughs> I knew like my focus was like gone like it was like that that adrenaline that passion yeah. like it was it was gone um I hit a wall like I literally just hit a wall and I started working for a, a a small community college in the Bay Area. And they were looking for an admissions counselor to go out to schools and do these presentations about college and about their school. And so I thought, well, I could do that. I can present yeah. any place. Um, and so it was this great fit using sort of my theater background to go into all of these schools and present to these students. Um, and I just, I loved it and I, I really started to think about education and, and how education mattered and it was in that space that I started to meet people who were returning home after incarceration mm. and 
I started off as an admissions counselor. I worked as an instructor, was promoted to dean of students. And so as dean of students, I really was interested in how this sort of relationship between kind of pulling your life back together and you, you know, trying to figure out your education, but you're also trying to figure out your housing and your daycare and all of these sort of other things. And so I really started to think about um, what's happening to people in our community. Um, and at the same time, um, I started talking to my biological father more, who had been incarcerated when I was six months old, spent nine years in prison, and he was virtually a stranger um, till I was in my 20s. And mm -hmm. so, like, starting to talk to him more and hearing his story and interacting with these students, it was just one of those things that just sort of happened, yeah. I guess, yeah. um, in a way that was unexpected, but definitely um, life-changing and felt like I was truly like living in my purpose and doing what I was supposed to be doing. No, I think that's, that's one of the things that um, Malcolm and I have talked about a little bit, just in terms of just allowing life to sort of just unfold. Yeah, take sort it of, on its path. Yeah, because, yeah. um, you know, I think both, both of us, uh, after this first year, um, are sort of realizing that our careers are going to be taking a little possibly taking a little bit of a different path than what we thought. You know, mm -hmm. I'm not going to be staying at the same school that I've been at this whole mm -hmm. year. Yeah. Um, and I don't think Malcolm is either, and, and he might even be teaching right a grade that yeah, you're not. Yeah, higher grade level than, than what I was expecting. expecting. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, sort of just allowing life to sort of just take or leaning into mm -hmm. what life sort of presents to you a little bit, so. Because you just never know, you know, like I, I never thought I would marry, have children, any, I always thought I'd be single and performing someplace. Mm -hmm. um, but this guy that asked me this to guy. move, this guy <laughs> that asked me to, move to California, I mean, gosh, we've been together 25 years wow. and we have two kids. And so you just, you never know. Yeah. And I think that's a special thing, like we talked about before, with the, the field of education um, and what I like to hear and see when people talk about getting in the field of education is almost like that feeling of like a calling, like you mm -hmm. said, of, of feeling like you're fulfilling your purpose. It's like an accident. Almost. Yeah, like and bringing that, that spirituality aspect back to the field of education because there's a lot of soul in it, there's a lot of spirit in it, um, and we need people that are spirited. Um, to be in this field, you know, and it really impacts, you know, how you view children, how you view the whole, uh, what I, like I said, field of education, how special you take it, you know what I mean, your values of it. Um, especially in the way, like what you said when you first started of like, taking some of those aspects of what you learned in theater mm -hmm. and bringing it into the field of going mm -hmm. to present and, you know, tell people about college. But I'm sure with, like you said, you're, your background you're able to do it with more spirit and more mm -hmm. energy and bring it to life you know and people need that you know what i mean instead of feeling like you know school is just this boring outdated system that they're forced to go to mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. so i think that's really cool that's that's amazing mm -hmm. uh, so how you know now you are in austin um you're working uh as a professor but also with Excellence in Advancement Foundation and a few other projects you have going on as well. Do you want to tell us a little bit about those? So after finished, so I, you know, when I started the PhD program, I really thought that I would work in a system. I thought I would work in the criminal justice system in some sort of way, whether um, in, you know, probation or corrections for juveniles, because um, I wanted to really think about how do we change the system. So the process of my dissertation really changed that in terms of when I started to hear these men's stories and hear sort of the things that they were facing and what was happening, I really felt like it was my responsibility to do something. Um, I, it's hard to explain like that sense of, wow, I wouldn't have my PhD had it, if it weren't for these men sharing their stories with me. Yeah, and so because they gave that to me, I felt like it was my responsibility to give something back to the community. And when I looked at all the things that were happening with the school to prison pipeline phenomenon, how people were trying to solve for the problem or not solve for the problem, um, I started the Excellence and Advancement Foundation and really thought about it as an ecosystem of service. And so we have prevention, 
um, enrichment programs, summer camps for kids who've never had any school discipline issues at all. But we understand that when you parse out everything, social economics, parents' education, blah, 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 the most salient factor is race. And so we want to ensure that black and brown kids um, understand their worth and understand how to navigate a system that isn't always a system made for them. Um, and our intervention services, we have those because those kids are already involved in school discipline issues. And so we have individual and family counseling. Um, we do home visits, we do school visits, we provide court advocacy, and that can mean a whole lot of things. We write affidavits, we go to court with them, we help the parents navigate the system. Um, and then the advocacy piece is, I think, probably the most critical piece because we really want to understand the systems that are at play. <clears throat> that influence this this very fluid and very effortless um, pipeline and so we partner with organizations like texas appleseed which is a policy organization mm -hmm. um, we partner with them to end pre-k through second grade um, suspensions, suspensions yeah. um, we have a healing in the village project that we're doing right now that's addressing childhood trauma because you know in our communities mental health is still um, dealt with with a lot of stigma and a lot of shame and our our children are dealing with a lot of things that my generation didn't have to deal with um they're exposed to so much and so much that their brains can't really process like that's, what, that's what we talked about yeah. in one of our classes about how like trauma can actually affect your, yeah. your um, brain development yeah. yes you see it you see it daily daily and i you know I, my son, when he was a freshman in high school, he came home one day and he was like, man, he was like, today I was, they were at lunch and one of his friends on his friend's phone on social media showed my son a video of a man being killed in real time. How do you help a kid process yeah, yeah. watching death happen? Um, that kind of trauma, um, secondary trauma, mm -hmm. It's important that we try and figure out how to help our children navigate um, what's happening in their brains and how it is happening and, and the effects that that kind of trauma has on their mental health. Um, right now, 14-year-olds, black boys, the, their risk of suicide has increased tremendously over the last 10 years. And so these are things I think that we really have to talk about as a community because what's happening in our schools is that when our children have mental health challenges, they're seen differently than yeah. white kids. And so white kids are getting help and they're getting services and black kids are getting the criminal justice system. Yeah, I know. And so we really have to, to really think about in what ways are we serving kids and how are we serving them? Yeah, I think that's a, a very important piece because, you know, I myself, even in the short time that I've been in a classroom, have been like wondering, like, yeah, like, what do those conversations look like? Especially because I've been dealing with younger grades, like second grade. But, you know, I have students that already in second grade have talked about killing themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and I've seen, like how you said, in the community, it comes with the stigma of like, you know, it's almost not looked at as a mental health issue. But it's looked at as the, the, the older adults, they tell the, the students, you just want attention. You know, you're just looking for attention, you know, be quiet, like mm -hmm. nothing's wrong with you, you know, and it's not taken seriously. But you have this seven year old, you know, talking about killing themselves. And it's like, wait a minute, like we need to address this. This is a real life thing. You know what I mean? Um, and, and for so, some reason in our community, we we think of mental illness as some sort of weakness yeah. versus an illness. Mm -hmm. um, and 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 we think about it as if people can't recover. Mm -hmm. Like there like there isn't a recovery process. There is a recovery process, just like any other illness. If you, you know, if you have cancer, there's a recovery mm -hmm. process. And so I think we really have to get our community to think about it differently. Because when you hear a seven year old um, say that they want to end their life, then there's something behind that. There's a reason why they said that. Yeah. And we need to sort of get to the root of what is happening and how do we help this child find the tools that they need to process all the things that they're dealing with um, in their very young and non-sheltered life. Yeah. Like they're just not sheltered anymore from anything. Yeah, from no. anything, yeah. So, you know, I think this conversation is really amazing. I wonder, you know, because we are in, you know, 
public schools. That's sort of been our experience. And I feel like the route that you sort of taken is sort of trying to create like an alternative system outside, outside of just like within the public school system, within like traditional educational systems. So like, why did you choose to go about creating like this like nonprofit as opposed to taking these services into or starting them inside of like a post school? Does that make does Yes, that makes sense. So one of the reasons is many of our kids hate school. Yeah, <laughs> and I didn't want to associate the work that we're doing with a system that they hate. Mm -hmm. um, and I also believe that there's so much strength in community. Um, the, some of the, the volunteers and the community leaders that participate in our programs, it's a it's a generational sort of thing. I mean, you were in, you were one of I'm our... Say that's, where, that's where I very first met you. <laughs> that's where we very first yeah. met, volunteering. And, you know, you're fresh out of undergrad, young. The children loved you, but they also loved the older woman who was in her 60s who also mm -hmm. came to volunteer. Um, and so I think that there's so much power in community that gets ignored. Um, and also in our schools, sometimes what we bring into our schools be begins to get co-opted in ways that are unexpected and unknowing because we are in a school environment and the school can control what you say, how you present it, um, what kids are exposed to. They can really put a, a clamp on your work. Yeah. And I wanted the freedom and I wanted, um, I wanted kids to feel like they had a village. Mm. Yeah, no, for sure. It just, you know, it makes me, as you sort of think, because we were talking about this, you know, yesterday, is sort of when you have to, you know, we recognize that there are issues within ed education and we want to address those issues, um, but how can we effectively address those issues when we continuously put ourselves outside of that system in order to, like, try and affect change within that system? Mm -hmm. Like, how, you know... How do you imagine that? Like, because I think it's a both end. So while my nonprofit operates out technically outside of the system, mm -hmm. we work really closely with the system. So not only um, do schools refer to me, um, but I also train teachers and administrators, um, not just in Austin, but really kind of all over the country. Um, so that for me is the bigger sort of system issue that we that we deal with. And so I do think it's a both and. Now, in terms of the work that you all are planning to do, I think you have to be patient with yourselves in terms of thinking about one person can't do everything, mm -hmm. but everyone can do something. something. Yeah. So when people start talking to me about standardized tests and what we're gonna do about the standardized test, I'm like, that's not my lane. <laughs> no. that's, that's somebody no. else's lane, yeah. and I'm gonna let them work in their um, lane. That's you definitely know? Like the community aspect of like, Revolution and change, like mm -hmm. for sure. Yeah. And I love the teacher education part too, because that's something that I think about too. Like as a classroom teacher, yeah, we have to be willing to work with systems and organizations like the one that you have and take in that education so we can bring some of those practices mm -hmm. inside the classroom, but also have the outside support mm -hmm. as well. That's, I think, one of the responsibilities of being a teacher, mm -hmm. of continually educating yourself um, on how to be better. And I think that as educators, we really have to be activists and we have to yeah. think in that vein. Mm -hmm. Like, um, if we don't fight for these kids, who will? Yeah, exactly. And so I, I think that helping teachers remember that and remind them that you are the one mm -hmm. that makes change happen in our system. Um, and teachers have a lot of power. Yeah. Um, they can change a child's life for the best or for the for worst. worst. Yeah. Exactly. No, yeah, exactly. We've definitely talked a lot about that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's one of, I would say one of you know my biggest fears going into the classroom is uh, you know that uh, the future of these children is now in my hands yeah. right? and, and that's mm -hmm. a really big sense of responsibility mm -hmm. um, that I definitely feel like I have the capability of rising to but it's like it's a it's a showing up every day yeah it's huge thing yeah for yeah. sure um, you know speaking of fighting for our kids uh, you know, Florida just passed a bill recently allowing te uh, teachers to be armed. That's going to be crazy. And it's <laughs> an absolutely, absolutely mind-boggling to me. Um, and, of course, we know uh, the communities that are most often affected by gun violence mm -hmm. um, without any sort of protection, I should say. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, Texas, you know, we just read, you were just a part of an article for the Texas Tribune 
um, about this exact same issue because in Texas they're having the same conversation. I was wondering if you might be able to, you know, touch on that a little bit. Same conversation, same madness. Um, for me, when I think about this issue of um, gun safety and gun control, I think about it in terms of civil rights and yeah. how yeah. we try to legislate our way out of racism using things that didn't make sense. So, for instance, um, Brown v. Board, while it was idealistic, <sighs> landmark, you know. <laughs> I had so many Landmark decision, putting our kids in harm's way didn't change racism yeah. in this country. Yeah, yeah. And so I think about this whole bringing guns, arming teachers, how is bringing more guns in our schools going to protect children from gun violence? Yes. Like it's a crazy kind of, we need, there are, there are countries that have zero school shootings. <gasps> yeah, like, really? Like, what a crazy concept. Because yeah. they have strict gun laws. Yeah. yeah. It's not hard to change gun laws. We just don't want to. We're, we're, we're putting all these other things in place. And the, and the children most at risk when we bring guns into our school, whether that be with law enforcement or arming teachers, are black children. Mm-hmm. They're most at risk. And I think Malcolm and I were talking about, like, the thing that sort of comes to my mind is, is this issue of um, school shootings, is it an urban education issue? Is it a black student issue? Uh, And... Right no. now, the answer is no. I mean, many instances where you know, one where the school shooter was black, no, um, yeah. and two where it was in uh, in high urban education uh, setting, yeah. no. and so you know, this law that is supposed to be protecting students, I think one, which students, right, um, and two, uh, what communities are really going to be affected by. Mm-hmm more guns because uh, I think you had a really beautiful quote in there that basically was saying um, there is not a very great history right it's um, complicated between, yeah between <laughs> yeah. Uh, black communities um, police and guns mm-hmm. and I think if you look at that history there is a very rational reason why black and brown teachers black and brown parents black and brown mm-hmm. students would be very apprehensive about army teachers yes it, it's for us guns safety police those those things aren't synonymous mm-hmm. when we think about police and we think about safety or we think about guns and safety like those those things don't go together for yeah. us yeah. because we aren't safe we aren't always mm-hmm. safe now it, and I say it's complicated because yes we have police officers that protect I mean yeah just like we have good teachers and mm-hmm. then we have crappy teachers yeah. i mean like there's always a both and a both and but when we think about um the issues around children being killed by the police these are trained professionals and now you're giving untrained teachers mm-hmm. a weapon in school teachers who already view our boys at in First grade. Yeah. There's a reason why teachers need cultural bias. Yes. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's like we haven't even gotten that part right. We haven't even gotten there. And to then arm them, so they're already suspending our children, expelling them in rapid numbers. But now we're going to arm them yeah. so that they could potentially shoot a child that they feel quote unquote threatened by yeah. like it just it's a recipe for disaster yeah yeah because yeah, that's not even yeah because bet the moment that happens and someone uses that rationalization like that's that's not even that's not who you're supposed to be protecting like that's not oh that's not that's not who you're supposed to be feeling threatened by yeah. right that's the person you're supposed to be protecting, protecting. Right. with that being armed right. in the first place right. uh, is that student. Yeah, so I, I would definitely say it's like a really big fear coming up with that type of yeah. legislation. Because um, active shooters, I mean, that 
there's a way to stop it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, these the, the active shooters are have weaponry, military weaponry. What in what other country do regular civilians have access to military grade yeah, exactly. weaponry? None. Yeah, I <laughs> <laughs> I'm just gonna put it out there. None. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think you know, as we read your article, or as we read the, that that particular article, we read some of the solutions um, that you and a few others sort of recommended. And I think Malcolm and I felt pretty, pretty positively about the um, providing mental health services, mm-hmm. um, providing more counselors. But one of the things that we felt a little bit confused on was the sort of idea of hardening schools. And so... So hardening be... was not my words. Okay. Um, that was, that, was, the, that yeah. was the author of the article. Okay. Um, so... I do think that um, schools need, you know, access. Like in terms of like you have to buzz the door, say yeah. who you are, and be allowed to come into the schools. Um, A lot of that seems to already be in place though. And so for me, I'm like, I don't think our schools are necessarily unsafe. Um, but there, there are schools who don't necessarily have, you can just go in, like yeah. you can just enter the school um so i think that all schools should have like a you know again I, I don't know any urban schools that where you could just walk walk in like i'm not i've never seen that at a dc public school i don't know and and i can't think of any urban schools or inner city big city however we want to phrase the school that has the black and brown kids yeah. in it um they always have those kinds of like mechanisms in place, but not all schools do. Um, there are some, yeah, some no. schools that just don't have that kind of thing. So the hardening of schools, yeah, no, my high school, not my words. Like yeah, no, <laughs> no, because no, I guess one of the things we talked about was just the idea of like how easily it seems to us to be able to make or draw the comparison between schools and prisons. Yes. Yeah. Um, and when you talk about the idea of hardening. A school, it's it feels slightly problematic. Yes, it, it is problematic. I mean, I guess if schools feel like they need bulletproof windows, yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> like my um, thing is like I just feel like sometimes we just focus on the wrong things. Yes, like, <laughs> yeah, like, yes. like we just like <laughs> it just goes over people's heads. Like you said, like you know the direct correlation between countries that have stricter gun laws and no school shootings. Like right. Why is that so hard, like, for people to wrap their head around and be like, okay, well, this is what we need to focus on instead of, yeah, like, hardening the schools, bulletproof windows, like... The shooters inside the school yeah, exactly. already, like, already like, like... Let's not pretend like there isn't a pattern and we can't look at... Yeah, like, right. they're in the pattern. classroom, in the hallways. The yes. windows aren't saving anybody. At and, and they are... And these weapons are coming, some from family members, parents, Exactly, like... like you know, the fact that we won't even consider um, laws around safety in the home, like how mm-hmm. weaponry is locked up or secured. I mean, it is, Texas has a serious gun problem mm-hmm. um, in the sense of that people won't think rationally about true gun control. Yeah. yeah people love their guns. Yeah, no. Everybody loves their guns. Yeah, no, um, especially in the... In the wake of the recent shooting in Colorado, um, and I couldn't help but sort of be a little bit stricken by the the, uh, the heroism of that has sort of been placed upon one of the students who uh, died protecting the other students, and you know I've just seen meme after meme of you know. People just talking about how oh I'm you know so so thankful that this student is able to die to protect our you know our rights to protect the Second Amendment like that just seems to be like the continued right. <laughs> in, in 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 mocking right yeah, just right. like yeah. you know what's what's it gonna take right. right like we just have one more student mm-hmm. who is being hailed as a hero which is he should be but like to protect what like yeah. what what is it going to take in order for us to like make that jump? Right. 
to make the leap. Yeah. Um, and and part of that is is political power, and we see a little of this shift happening um, with this midterm election that just happened. More women, more people of color. You mm -hmm. know those, but we have to regain some sense of political power. Um, there was a time when black people in this country were eager to vote, were ready to vote, yeah. were ready to mm. like push their their political muscle. And I think we've lost some of that. I think we've been lulled into a sense of complacency. Um, and I think we have to get back to what it means to have some political power. And I think some people might hear this conversation and think, you know, I guess talking about gun laws, like that's not education. Like that's not like that, that's that's not important to education. Like that's not. Like, see, sometimes that's how I feel. Yeah. Like that's sometimes like 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 even like I think these conversations are important. But like sometimes like I was telling you this yesterday. Yeah. Like you know you were asking me if I heard about the school shooting and I was like no, um, and that's just I really just don't keep up with that type of news because to me I have like more important things to kind of like focus on and like you know that may sound bad are like um, neglectful, but it's like, I have students that still every day don't have pencils and, and basic supplies. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you know, and like, you know, yeah, so sometimes, mm -hmm. yeah, these, these gun laws, I definitely agree with them. But yeah, I think some of the more important stuff is like, yeah, I got it. I have a student that just yesterday when she got in trouble and she didn't win an award, she talked about killing herself. Like mm -hmm. that's more of a pressing issue to me. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Because like, yeah, I want to figure out, you know, how can I help this student in the end? How can I ensure that my classroom has supplies mm -hmm. rather than, like, bulletproof windows? Yeah. You know what no, I mean? Like, sure. And for sure, like, when we think about it, we've had, I think I think the number is, like, 280. I may be a little off on mm -hmm. this number, but 200 and something school shootings since 2009. Wow. Yeah. That's not really that. I mean, when you think about the, the thousands of children <laughs> um, that are going without in our country yeah. that don't have the adequate... Um, just educational services that they need. Exactly. The problem seems small and irrelevant. Especially for urban education, like you said, like the school to prison pipeline is a much bigger, mm -hmm. and that's why sometimes I think too with, with politics and policy, which I agree with you, is that we need more people of color and women getting in there that actually can, I can kind of like see past like what I would say, not a distraction, but like mm -hmm. see to like the real issue. Like this focus mm -hmm. on gun talk to me sometimes is like a distraction. Like against what's really going Affecting, on uh, yeah, in our schools every day. Like I said, there's, mm -hmm. there's kids that in third grade, you know, that are failing these test scores, right? And that are being calculated to go to prison. You know, that's a big thing that they're building prisons based off, you know, yeah. black and brown children's test scores. Yeah. That's an issue that we need to be talking about, you know, because that's an everyday occurrence that's mm -hmm. happening every day. Every day there's a child who is being suspended, expelled, exactly. and is being pushed out of our school system mm -hmm. um, in rapid numbers. I do wholeheartedly agree with what you guys are saying in that regard. And I think that our schools are these places where so many things can happen. And I think that that's how these gun conversations come up. Because yeah. we, we also don't want one of these black or brown kids killed. Yeah because a teacher is caring. Yes, exactly. And so we have all these like mm -hmm. issues when we think about how do we keep our kids safe in a school space? How do we like educate and, and essentially raise whole, healthy, happy black and brown children that we can send out into the world? Mm -hmm. And our schools have to feel safe, safe yeah. for yeah, them. Well, I think a lot of times we use the word intersectional to talk about identities, mm -hmm. but the, you know, Education, the issue of education itself, like there, it is intersectional. There are so many different components to it. Um, I think what I feel con conflicted about is, and I and I would agree that you know, gun violence is not necessarily one of the ones that I, or the intersections that I feel like is the most pressing. Um, but how do you sort of decide yeah. the levels mm -hmm. of importance when it comes to the issues that intersect with education, right? And mm -hmm. how you sort of like decide that this issue is more important than another issue. And I think even more than that, it comes down to what you were saying earlier about standing in your lane and trying to figure out like mm -hmm. where can where do you, you fit, fit yeah. into that conversation? Where do you fit into trying to create that change that you want to see? Because if you try to if you try to do it all 
you won't do you anything. Won't do anything. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, that's very true. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I also too feel like to um, go along with that too. That's the, what we talked about too about like the calling and you know feeling like you're walking your purpose. Kind of like feeling that out, and that's an important aspect, I think, too. Um, and then, yeah, yeah, staying in your lane, yeah, you got to stay focused on, like, yeah, what you want to do. And I think sometimes that's why I try to stay kind of, like, out of the news uh, that much because the news will make it seem like there's just so much, and you will start to lose that focus. And I mm-hmm. think that kind of contributes to, like, educator burnout, teacher burnout, people that are in the field where, yeah, you have all these different things coming at you and you kind of just lose sight of, like, what you want to work on. So you're just kind of like, well, whatever. And I think that, like you said, with voting, that some of that complacency, especially, I think, in our generation, um, you know, we've seen that, like, yeah, with young adults, we're just kind of like, all right, well, the world is just so crazy. It's just so much. So I just I just won't do anything. You know what I mean? Because we start feeling like there's nothing I can do. So I just really won't do anything at all. Instead of just yeah, picking out one thing and saying, okay, I'm going to focus on this. Because yeah. if somebody would get our teacher pay back to what it was when we started started this profession. Mm-hmm. You know, teachers were paid the same as doctors and lawyers. Mm-hmm. And so... Oh, that would be beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> what a world. <laughs> so we, we need to really think about why aren't our teachers making six figures? Yeah. The work that they do is yeah. critical. Yeah. They are shaping the next generation. Well, in DC, you can make six figures, yeah. but you, but you, you got to work in 20 yeah. years first until that happens. So. Oh. No, no. Yeah. I mean, starting Saturday. <laughs> fresh out of school. I mean, fresh out of school, just like these tech guys. Yeah, like, no. yeah. you know, fresh out of school, making a six figure salary because you're changing the world. Mm-hmm. Just like these tech guys are changing the world. Yeah. And so I think somebody has to be fighting for how do we make the teaching profession a profession Valued again? and yeah. invaluable again. Yeah. Um, so rather than, I guess, like focusing on the gun reform that needs to happen, you know, I think one of the things, you know, is fo- focusing a little bit more on that mental health aspect yeah. of our students. Um, is really valuable. How do you imagine, because I feel like, you know, that sort of like mental health side, even though teachers aren't psychologists, is something that teachers should be able to support our students in. And how do you sort of imagine like training or supporting teachers in a way that allows them to have the tools to be able to do that effectively? So I think that one, in your teacher prep programs, you should have a few more like developmental, educational psych courses so that you are at least like familiar and aware and then in our schools if we could if we could swap so we could do a counselor counselor over cop so I would say for every police officer in the building there should be a counselor in the building so those counselors could and because now in our schools counselors really focus on academics and Yeah, testing. Testing. We need counselors who are real mental health professionals who will see students and who will also train teachers. And so there should be this sort of relationship that happens where the counselors do, you know, either quarterly, semi-quarterly, however, trains with teachers, kind of keeping them up to date on the latest things that are happening around trauma trauma-informed care, um, what we see in our students in our building, you know, keeping it sort of local. And those counselors should also see students and be able to see students. So if you have, you know, 1,300 kids in a school and you only have one counselor, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, yeah, sure. But you have eight police officers. (laughs) How how is that? No, no. No, I mean, that's one of the things we should talk about in terms of, you know, how how often the teaching educational field is, like, growing and changing. Like, in five years, we won't be, you know, I said yesterday, we won't be fossils in education, but we're going to be a little bit outdated, like, even in five years. So, uh, you know, you said making sure that those sort of professional developments given by the psychologist is given like quarterly. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's twofold in terms of the teaching profession as well. I think that's yes. like, we just I th- always fall a little bit short in terms of making sure 
that teachers and everyone in the educational system is sort of like constantly knowing like mm -hmm. what's on the coming mm -hmm. like coming cutting edge mm -hmm. of um, the profession. It should be constant learning, you know, training from counselors, um, cultural responsiveness, anti-racism training, like all those things should be happening sort of ongoing. Yeah. Um, because I think those are the things that will help us dismantle the school to prison pipeline. Mm -hmm. Because when we have anti-racist teachers, teachers who are culturally responsive, that changes how they see kids. If we have more counselors versus police officers, then the response to our children when they are throwing a tantrum mm -hmm. won't be to handcuff them. Yeah. It will be to ask them, how are you feeling today? Mm -hmm. What's happening? How can I help? Yeah. Yeah. That I, is a totally different conversation yeah. for sure. And, and I think that's, it's, it's very important too, like I said, and I think I, I agree with you in teacher education programs. I wish we did have more, like I'm even thinking about the coursework we've taken this year. I wish we would talk more about developmental psychology. And you talked maybe yeah, like, like just barely. We had like one race and culture and equity class. Um, and that was, and that was and really, this the first year that that was put yeah, in, right? And yeah. I would really like, I like, I've shared my reviews, but that class, <laughs> I, was, used, I was, used to be in that class, like calling people racist and stuff. It, it was, was just, not, it was just wild. But I think it's such an aspect, like you said, of viewing child, because some things are really like so simple. I think like even yesterday, um, I was with my host teacher and one of the, one said she was a sixth grader or fifth grader. She got kicked out of class and I'm in a pre-K classroom. And so she came to the pre-K classroom because she knew the teacher and she just wanted to like chill out. Mm -hmm. um, and so we were just talking to her and like, you know, seeing like, you know, like upstairs in our middle school where the fourth through sixth graders are, there's like always a lot of fighting. Um, but one thing that we kind of like were shocked about where we were like asking her like, when is your lunch? And she was like, I don't, we don't eat until 1.30. And oh, that baby's hungry. Hungry, exactly. And that's <laughs> the first thing I said. I said, that's why y'all are up there. I literally told her yeah. that. I was like, that's why y'all are up there always angry and fighting. I was like, yes. you guys are hungry. Yeah. And she was like, yes. Like, she was like, I'm literally hangry. Like, she mm -hmm. was just like, I eat in the morning, breakfast, right? At 7 a.m. At 7 a.m. Yeah, don't get to eat until 1.30 p.m. hours? Yeah. Hour, and being little, you know, especially like being younger. They're burning that yeah. food, like... Yeah. They are literally sitting all of and their like, hungry. Yeah, and let's not even get into the type of food that a lot of our kids exactly. eat first thing in the morning. Exactly. Yeah. High sugar. Yes, hot uh, Cheetos. Drinking all the sugar water. And then just, so the high, high energy and then big crash. Just crashing. Yeah. Exactly. But like you said, if that was taught, right, if we learned a little bit about how that can affect you, that psychology mm -hmm. aspect of it, um, that social emotional aspect of it, like you said, we would view it so differently. So instead of being like, Yo, these kids are just off the chain. They're they don't right. know how to what act. Yeah, you would sit back like I did. Like the moment she told me that, I just was like, like Oh, you're hungry. Duh. Like, like, apple and peanut butter. Yeah, like, like how <laughs> like you're hungry. Like yeah. so yeah, when you get bumped in the hallway, mm -hmm. you can't, you know, process it, especially like I said, being a younger child, you can't process it, oh, as oh, excuse me. You're like, yo, why'd you why'd just you bump, bump me? me? <laughs> yeah, you know, like that's like like the Snickers commercial. You're not yeah. you when you're hungry. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. It's such a valid thing, but like, yeah, like we're saying, like the teacher education has to be able to prep somehow teachers to understand, because like you said, that's such a different conversation. Like, mm -hmm. and I've practiced that even myself. Like sometimes, like when my kids get angry, just ask them, "How can I help? You know, what can mm -hmm. I do?" Mm -hmm. And you see it in the in the child. It, 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 the moment it kind of like just breaks them. Like mm -hmm. that temper, that frustration, kind of just leave flushes out of them. Like, mm -hmm. okay, wait a minute, this is somebody that actually kind of wants to help me, mm -hmm. asking me a question. And like sometimes a kid will tell you. I am hungry or, mm -hmm. you know, I just, actually, I just don't want to go to the bathroom. Can mm -hmm. I take a break? Mm -hmm. You know, something like that. And it could really just be that simple. Mm -hmm. So that's actually like a very important piece that I think we should talk about more in the field of education of like, yeah, how to get people those, those classes instead of having to like minor psychology or go mm -hmm. get another degree mm -hmm. that should kind of be implemented inside. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what we sort of talked about in terms of teachers creating a classroom culture. Like it, mm -hmm. it starts from the moment those kids enter that room and the way that you sort of communicate exactly. with your students. Mm -hmm. I mean, we were talking about how we have teachers who talk about smacking the kids <laughs> because they're, they're misbehaving and then the students are smacking each, each other, other and, and get like, upset. Yeah. And then she's like, why are you doing that? It's like, well, you, you said it? you would do it. Like, what? Like, how? Yeah, yeah. How can we expect... Um, 
you know, anything other than what we're modeling to our students mm -hmm. to be what our students are producing. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. We don't we don't give our teachers enough support. Yeah. No, we don't. Bottom line, yeah. we don't. And somebody needs to work on that. Um, that needs to be someone's calling, someone's mission <laughs> to figure yeah. out how do we pay teachers more so that we can support them more. Um, I think teachers should have a residency period where you finish your you're teaching, you know, undergrad program, and you go into three years mm -hmm. of residency. Wow, where, three years of residency. Three years of residency. Hey, that's a, that's that's ambitious. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I just think about I just think about first year teachers. Yeah. And no, I feel I I feel and you. That's why this I did, like, yeah, that's one year of residency yeah. has been you know much needed. Mm -hmm. Three years. But Urban Teachers is looking <laughs> like a three-year residency in the sense of like we are going to get coaching yeah. and uh -huh. get evaluated. And we have support, you know what I mean? No, I think that's that's, that's one big thing about like the program Urban Teachers that I, I do appreciate is that we do have support. Mm -hmm. We have people that we can reach out to. If we get frustrated, you know, we can talk to people. We have a cohort of members that are going through these same experiences. So I think that's that's valid, especially in the sense of like we said, taking the, the profession more seriously. Mm -hmm. It has to be taken more seriously than, you know, like, like uh, that was one of my gripes. It's always been one of my gripes with programs kind of like similar to like, kind of like almost like City Year and like Teach for America where yeah. they try to just put you in the classroom. And we talked about this where people like, oh, I'm just going to go be in the classroom for two years and I'm going to leave. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you know that me that profession is not being taken seriously, mm -hmm. and like we talked about, even well, like prep is like six weeks over the summer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But even students, I think students can pick up on that. They mm -hmm. they're, they're so more intuitive and spiritual than what we take them for. But they pick up on oh, this is just a teacher that's just they don't care. Like they don't care. They're just here. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Instead of seeing somebody that's like oh wait, this person actually cares for me. I think all of that comes through. Mm -hmm. So that would make sense, you know. And I think yeah, a little step like that. Like having a residency would make, you know, even for me, this program, this residency that I'm in has made me take the profession mm -hmm. so much more seriously. Because I'm yeah. like, oh, yeah, it's not just no little deal, you know, like, yeah. it's a big deal, you know. Yeah, I would definitely say when I, when I think about when you say residency, though, I imagine being the second teacher in the classroom. Like, well, I think you yeah. think about it like doctors, right? Mm. Like when doctors are in residency, um, they're still practicing. Yeah. They just have doctors who are more experienced, who are there to support them and guide them. So teachers would have their own classrooms, but they would have an older teacher support mm -hmm. person yeah. who sort of, you know. No, so that is so. I mean, that is like urban teachers. Yeah, uh -huh. yeah. It's, teachers just, and it's just you would imagine that being like a systematic implementation, yes. like across the board, as yes. opposed to like a specialized program, right? Like yeah, an alternative right. program. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. No, I think yeah. that's that. Yeah, I think that would be super. Yeah. Super helpful. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah, because that makes it like I'm thinking like that would make even like when people apply to be in the school of education, it'd be so much more important or valued than as it should be when people go to medical school, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Like I'm going to education school, mm -hmm. you know, like, like that's what I like about Columbia. I don't know, if, I don't think they have a residency here, but just the name of Teachers College, mm -hmm. I think makes you recognize like this is a special place, mm -hmm. Teachers College, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? This is a place for teachers mm -hmm. um, and those little steps, yeah, go a, mm -hmm. a long way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, because I feel like a lot of times, um, you know, I know when my mom talked about her, cause she's now an art teacher in Austin. Um, she was talking about when she was in college and she was having to sort of be a TA or support or in, during her residency year, it ended up being, we, we talked about this a little bit in a previous episode, right? It just ended up being a little bit like, oh, go do my lunch duty. Yeah, exactly. Go do my recess duty, mm -hmm. go print these papers. Mm -hmm. um, and so I feel like there's already a lot of easy ways for things that are already implemented into the system to be not uh, executed the way that they should. And so, you know, I think it would also take a lot of checks and balances to make sure that that sort of residency or that sort mm -hmm. of support was not mm -hmm. yeah. abused Absolutely. for, you know, free substitutes <laughs> yeah, exactly. in other classrooms, <laughs> right. um, you know, and things of that nature that, you know, we're already seeing mm -hmm. yeah. in our, you know, in our residency, mm -hmm. uh, for sure. Um, 
thinking about the school to prison pipeline a little bit, I think that's a really big, like overarching issue that sort of encompasses a lot, like almost everything that we're talking about sort mm -hmm. of plays into or factor into the school to prison pipeline. Do you imagine that issue to be fixable? I mean, do you imagine the school to prison pipeline to be able to be broken when we have, you know, a prison industrial complex that like we have for-profit prisons and we have like, I mean, it seems like a much bigger issue than, or it can be interpreted or seen as a much bigger issue than just what's happening in education. Like people want, you know, there was a recently um, a, a judge that was charged with purposefully indicting kids or uh, small black and brown youth into um, the, the prison, in, right. in the prisons. And so like, you know, how, you know, how do you imagine like this tackling the issue? So here's, here's, here's my thoughts is that the mass incarceration system um, is going through some reforms and like any big system, some of those reforms are going to work. Some of them are not because it's a very profitable system. Yeah. But from my perspective, if we in our schools really start to focus on how do we ensure kids get an education mm -hmm. versus how do we ensure that we kick kids out of the classroom, what we know for sure is that the more education you have, the less likely you are to commit a crime. Mm -hmm. So there are large percentages of people who are incarcerated who never graduated from high school. Yeah. So if we could just simply keep kids in, keep mm -hmm. kids in, yeah. we are changing our incarceration system with that yes. small yeah. effort. Yeah. And so I say small effort, but <laughs> yeah. this is a pretty yeah. big effort. It's a pretty, it's a big effort. But I do believe that this system can change if we really think that black and brown children are just as smart, mm -hmm. just as worthy, and just as capable. And I, I, that simple. It's yeah. just that simple. Yeah. How we see them, how, how we see them in our classrooms is so critical. Yeah. Um, in the work that we do in the school to prison pipeline, like one example, for instance, we had a 12 year old girl um, who was throwing the desk around at school, just losing it, cussing yeah. teachers out, mm. going See, through. Seen, seen that before. Right. <laughs> what we found out is that she had been um, disciplined for the first time in second grade mm. because she um, wasn't reading in the same way that the other kids were reading. Well, what I found out is that that was her defense mechanism because yeah. she didn't feel like she was a strong reader. She would misbehave so that she didn't have to be in the classroom. Yeah. So that just started a pattern for her. And once we figured out that what her, what her real need was, was education, this young girl, she's not perfect, but she's a cheerleader now on her you know, school team. Like, but her teachers only saw her the problem child. as yeah. the problem child. They didn't see her as a kid who needed something. Mm -hmm. And they didn't see her as a child who deserved an education. And of course, this is a black child. Yeah. We had a white child referred to us, 16 years old, um, young white girl. She brought enough cocaine and pills to school to supply probably four blocks Ooh. of DC. Um, she was never charged. She was never arrested. Wow. Because they said they didn't want her um, ruin her future. Ruin her future. Wow. So yeah, that's that. And, 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 the thing, and the thing is, is like that's not a rare story. Yeah. No. no, that's like no. pretty that's common. Every common yeah, every, everyday yeah. story. We hear it all the time. You hear about grown men. Yeah. <laughs> you, hear, yes. you hear about grown men that they don't get indicted for you know whatever heinous crime they right. committed because it'll and you hear about black men with a gram of weed that get years right <laughs> yeah. right. non-violent crimes right. just being and it, whole it, lives it, it's up. whose whose life is valued yeah and yeah. if we could get to a place in our schools where we have teachers who are anti-racist because we never you know we passed brown v board in 1954 but we 
it was woefully like flawed in terms yeah. of how we implemented it. We put children in schools where white teachers hated them yeah. and thought they were criminal and thought they were aggressive, and that has not changed. We mm. haven't fixed mm. that fundamental problem in our country. Mm. When we deal with race in this country, lots of systems will change. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like that Brown versus Board, like even though it happens like you know so long ago. Like I said, I think sometimes we just focus on the wrong things. And like you said, we were just so focused on integration that, yeah, we didn't think about the consequences mm -hmm. of that. Because one big thing I like to read about is the history of education. And when you read about uh, black and brown schools before Brown versus Board, they were almost excellent. They yeah. were like excellent. very respected, like teacher relationships, everything we would want to see now. College going race. Integration was one of the worst things to happen to black children in education. Exactly. Teachers were fired, principals and counselors were demoted. And people look at you like you're crazy when you say that. Yeah. How could you know how could you say that we we saved we saved them from Terrible education, it's, but that was never the premise exactly. of how Brown versus Board even began. It began because of just like this, the parents wanted the fun, they thought it was fundamentally their right to be able to send their well, kids, not because they're we, disappointed. If we in really education break it down, they felt like education was easier to integrate than housing, mm -hmm. employment, and all of the critical things that needed to happen. Mm -hmm. So, they that. That legislation, from my perspective, was a gateway mm -hmm. to housing and employment because um, that was the easier thing. Like, oh, these cute little children, yeah, yeah. we can't deny these children. Um, when really our focus should have been on housing and employment, mm -hmm. we really should have been focused on the socioeconomic yeah. piece because that really could have changed how we implemented integration yeah. in terms of education. Mm -hmm. For sure. Yeah. Um, so I think it's about coming up towards about almost into the episode, but I wanted to just give a moment for you to be able to talk about you know some of the things you have going on uh, with you know your practice and uh, with you know Excellence Investment Foundation. What do you have going on? What's coming up? What's big for you um, right now? So what's big for us right now? We are gearing up for our Healing in the Village Family Festival. It's going to be June eighth. Um, we're really excited about bringing youth and families out for a really good time, but partnering um, and, and pairing them with practitioners that look like them. So mental health professionals, physical health, spiritual health, um, all in one space um, cool. and having a great time. And so we're really excited about our June 8th event. Um, and in the fall, our other big event will be our equity space. We are bringing together equity space. Um, we're bringing together education, nonprofit, healthcare, um, corporations, all kinds of government entities into one space to talk about equity because there are equity things happening in silos. Mm -hmm. And I think that as a community, we need to start talking about them kind of collectively, collectively. Yeah. and what are the best practices in education that might that might help business or what are some yeah. really good practices in businesses that might help government and so really thinking about what equity really means in our communities and how do we ensure that um, across systems um, and as always we're serving families every single day mm -hmm. um, and I think that's our greatest need yeah. in terms of if people ever wanted to donate um, time or resources it is to helping families get their children out of the criminal justice system. Is there, is there somewhere, you know, where can people find your information? Where can people sort of get in contact with you if they wanted to? So please go to breakthepipeline.org, um, .com, .net. We have them all, whatever mm -hmm. you just break the pipeline. And that's a great way to reach us and figure out how you can get involved. We always need people who want to engage and there's different ways to engage. We want you to use your gifts and your talents um, and or your money to get engaged. For sure. Thank you guys so much for having me. It's been a pleasure to no, just yeah, no, thank you. It's been a great conversation. And, and yeah, most definitely. yeah, thank you so much. Um, and thank you for those of you that tuned in today. Uh, like we always say, uh, we really appreciate all the support from everyone 
Um, always reach out to us on our social medias, whether it be Facebook, Instagram, uh, whether it be on our website. We're always open to you sending us um, either people that you want us to get in contact with, uh, ideas for conversations that we can have. Um, but again, the conversation about uh, education and equity is always communal. It should always involve uh, a bunch of different voices. Um, so try try to include yours. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Thank you so much, Thank guys. You. Appreciate it.